Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show, whether you're watching live or listening on the podcast. Uh, we've got a very, very important show today, which is a very damning insight into the realities of modern Britain. The mass sackings of P&O workers is shocking, but in, a, in many ways, not surprising. It exposes higher, the, the terrible fire rehire uh, framework which exists in Britain. Uh, the way that the law is systematically rigged against working people, the fact that a multinational company can behave like this. So you've seen these mass sackings of hundreds of people, some by video link. There's various reports of, for example, uh, people being told on video link, handcuffs being uh, used, uh, people being forcibly taken off, uh, marched off the ships, and reportedly Eastern European labour being uh, used uh, with £2.60 an hour or even less. It's an absolute shocker. And as I've said, it does reveal quite a lot about the state of modern Britain. Now, let's just go straight now to talk to uh, talk to Mick Lynch, who is the General Secretary of the RMT, which is the trade union which represents these P&O workers. Good to see you, Mick. How are you doing? All right, yeah, considering. Uh, it's been a busy week. I can imagine, yeah. Can you just talk us through what happened and how is it possible? Because a lot of people, maybe naively, will just find this so astonishing that this is in any way legally possible. So just tell us the basics. Yeah, it's a bit complex. So if you if you, you have international voyages, so ferries to France, Holland and the Republic of Ireland are governed by international law. So you can, if you choose as an employer, use overseas labour. So we've got a mixture or there is a mixture of largely Russian officers, uh, Ukrainian ratings, Filipino ratings, Indonesian and uh, Indian ratings. These, that's the crew that can work all around the world on British flagged or foreign flagged vessels. Traditionally, and up until now, f- ferries going from UK waters. So we have ferries all around the Scottish islands, up to the Shetlands, over to Ireland, over to Holland and, the, and France and Belgium and all the rest of it. Those have traditionally been uh, crewed by UK and European crews, obviously working from those countries back and forth. Uh, We have had encroachment of uh, foreign labour being used at cut price discount rates. Now, we've got no beef with uh, people from overseas trying to make a living, but we've got got to stop the race to the bottom. So what P&O have done using COVID as a smokescreen and saying that they've lost X amount of pound, and we know that businesses have struggled. We're not, you know, we're not unreal in our approach. But using um, COVID as a smokescreen, they've decided to sack their entire workforce. And that goes from the captains, the masters of the vessels who have special powers under law, uh, maritime law, all the way down to people working in the canteens, uh, the engineers and the people on deck that you see tying up and all the rest of it and marshalling the, the lorries and the, and the cars. Every single person has been dismissed. And to do what they, to, what they aim to do is replace them entirely with cut price foreign labour. They may not all be foreign to start with from overseas, but they'll work their way through so that they end up with the cheapest labour they can get. And traditionally, they brought people over from Latvia, Lithuania. And if you go on a, a cruise liner, which is obviously international, I'm sure, not sure that's your bag, Owen, but if you were to go on a, a cruise, you would the, the masters of the vessels, the officers, would usually be European or American or, or Russian. And then everybody underneath that, and it is like an upstairs-downstairs relationship, would be from abroad. And the further abroad they're from, they're from, i.e. the Far East or India, the cheaper they will be. And they will be on those vessels for up to three months or longer at a time. Now, that's more usual on the high seas when you're going international on the big tankers and on the cargo ships. But on local waters, which can, can be international, it's traditionally been the indigenous, if you like, uh, um, labour from the, from the countries involved. So they've used the weakest employment laws in, in Europe, which is what we've got, to facilitate this sacking. 
But even under our weak laws, you're supposed to, or obliged to under law, consult the unions. So once it's a, a redundancy and a reorganisation of over 20 staff at a single location, uh, which this obviously involved is 800 at several locations, you have to go into step to a statutory consultation process with the unions. And the idea is that maybe you can work out a deal, you can work out some amendments uh, and reach, hopefully, an understanding about how that company could be restructured or reorganised to protect the staff and protect the company, if you like, if you want to put it that way. The punishments for that are very weak. You only get a financial settlement, uh, which will be a number of weeks' wages at a tribunal. So if you're in a very small company, a local business, they may make some mistakes in what they're doing. And if they do that, they'll get punished financially. A company like P&O is a mega company. It's been around for 180 years. It runs cruise ships, uh, freight vessels and ferries. And it's backed up by one of the richest families in the world, a set of oligarchs from Dubai, the Sultan of Dubai and the Dubai royal family. And they're slowly taking over all of the logistics uh, on the planet. Basically, they're buying ferries and ports and super terminals all over the world so that uh, they can diversify out of the oil industry, which they've obviously got control of in in the Middle East traditionally. So it's an absolute outrage. These people have conspired against their members. They told the government on Wednesday night that they were going to commit this illegal act and the government did nothing about it. They didn't even object to it. They just said, oh, we note the position and sent a memo around the Department for Transport informing themselves that it was happening and informing other departments, uh, government departments, that it was going to happen, and did nothing to say to this company, if you do that, we are going to uh, prosecute you, which could end up with the directors facing criminal sanctions. What they have to do now is train this um, new set of crew, replacement labour, on vessels they've never seen, on the busiest highways in the world, uh, business seaways in the world. Uh, The the channel is the busiest seaway anywhere on the planet. And they're going to take to the seas next week, they hope, with a completely new set of crew that we believe are untrained and leave our people on the dole. Now, we've got to correct that. We're calling for government intervention. Uh, In the long term, in the medium term, we want our employment laws strengthened. This is 40 years of diluting employment protection in Britain. It's not just about strike ballots, which you often hear the RMT complain about. We've got impossibly difficult uh, industrial relations laws. But it's also about the day-to-day protection of individual workers and collections of workers uh, having extremely weak employment labour. They could not do this in France, and they couldn't do it in Holland. They couldn't do it anywhere in Europe uh, and anywhere in the advanced economies, probably, because the employment laws are better. So that's that's it in a nutshell. And We've launched our campaign. We're looking for everyone to get involved. We'll be outside DP World again tomorrow, which is in Belgravia, fittingly enough. Uh, and we'll be outside Parliament because Labour is going to bring a, an emergency debate tomorrow afternoon. And we're hoping that we can make this government intervene. We want them to seize the vessels and impound those vessels and build a solution where we can get our people back on board in their rightful place, earning their living. I'm not a cruise ship kind of guy, but I did actually, as a kid, take Piano Ferry. more like perhaps. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not, I'm not judging people who go on cruises, but I, uh, but it's very much wrapped up in the childhood of people like myself. We, you mm. know, we'd get, we'd go to France, we'd get on the P&O ferry. Mm. Occasionally, felt a bit seasick as a child. I mean, we talk, people talk about. I mean, I mentioned fire and rehire, but this isn't actually fire and rehire. This is just fire. This is just fire and rehire someone else. Yeah, exactly on, on on inferior mm. terms and conditions. Mm. I mean, this is a lot of people look at this. You say, you know, basically these rich oligarchs, Dubai, and all the rest of it. I mean, this is gangster capitalism, isn't it? Absolutely. They're saying that we're not worried about the law. Uh, They will get a sanction. There's no doubt about it. Everyone is accepting they're breaking the law. But the sanctions are so weak, it's not worth them worrying about it. For them, it's like getting a parking ticket up the West End. You know, they might get a 50 quid fine. So if our members win the full amount that they could win uh, in a tribunal that could take a year or more to bring to, uh, you know, to, to, to fruition, the maximum they could win is 13 weeks wages. Uh, That's the maximum of the punishment for the individual member bringing that case. And we'll support them in that. But that's too late. We need instant reaction. We need an instant response from the government, from all the politicians and from the public who've got to show their dismay and have got to boycott P&O in the meantime. If they reopen next week 
uh, or the week after and start running ferries at discount prices, we're going to ask for the public coming into the holiday season at Easter and through the summer to boycott this company and go on to our other ferries where we have got terms and conditions negotiated. So we've got Stena and DFDS who are running on similar routes. And those people are undermined as well, because the first thing that I know that Stenner and DFDS and others are going to say is, how can I run my business on a, a, a cost footing that is completely different to P&O? Because they're still paying agreed wages, paying pension contributions, sick pay, and all the things you might expect of a decent company. And so it will be a race to them. But my message to every British worker is that this undermines you, whether you're working for a small firm a medium firm or a super uh, conglomerate, a global, you are undermined by this because it will give confidence to HR directors and uh, HR lawyers that if they can get away with this and P&O gets up and running, their firms could do something similar and they'll start thinking, well, why am I paying all this holiday pay? Why don't I just put people on the statutory minimum? You don't have to go abroad to get cheap labour. You just put people on the national minimum wage. You have no entitlement to sick pay. And you've no entitlement to anything except statutory holidays. And all the things that have been negotiated or are the norms are undermined by this gangster capitalism. I mean, if the government doesn't step in, I mean, the message surely is this could happen to, to any British workers. I mean, in terms of just concrete demands, there have been some calling for nationalisation um, mm. of P&O. So I'm just wondering, what, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that, for example, as a demand? Well, if you take the railway, if when a railway company, a train operating company, an LNER, for instance, is one on the East Coast, goes bust and can't continue, the government steps in and ensures that that railway runs, and it's called the operator of last resort. We could have a scenario here where the government does become the operator of last resort, because this company, it's not just about us going on our holidays. They import and export 15% of our trade through those docks. So these are very heavy industrial docks moving machinery, food, supplies, technology, whatever you want to name, uh, through those docks at Dover, Hull, uh, up in Scotland, over to, over to Larne uh, in Ireland and all the rest of it. So they're a vital part of the economy, not just for our, you know, towing your caravan over to, to, to France. So in terms of logistics and maintaining our status as a merchant uh, nation and as a, having a merchant marine, the government ought to do something, and Tories ought to be looking at that especially. We've got the, you know, what we call the white ensign, the red ensign on the back of some of these vessels, which is the British Merchant Marine. And we've gone from having a ho over 100,000 merchant seafarers in this country down to about six or 7,000. And the, the ports are the, the, the element, the main element of that. The ferries are, are the main element of what's going on. Um, so we need an intervention and we need to preserve our status as a trading nation and as a merchant uh, marine as well. And we won't have it otherwise. It will be all conducted by overseas crews with overseas owners. Just a couple, just a couple of other things, or just, just kind of lastly, really. Um, I mean, in terms of what members of the public can do, you're sort of, we're talking about a boycott, which is obviously very important. People need to boycott P&O ferries. But what the kind of general, the broader demands that that the labor movement the public need to focus on uh because as you said this is i mean what even though they've actually broken the law here so you could say well actually the law already forbids this but as you say the sanctions are so weak it, they they just they basically just factor that in as, as a in their cost benefit analysis so what are the kind of main demands and what this says in terms of the the general struggle for workers rights uh in yeah. britain we have some of the most let's be honest weakest workers rights in the western world the sanctions are weak for the individual member. So one of my members taking this tribunal case could get a maximum of 13 weeks. Mm -hmm. But the sanctions that are potentially available against the directors of P&O could be very severe. They could be prison sentences. But the prosecuting authority in that, I believe, is the uh, in what used to be called the Inland Revenue, the HMRC. And that's because the directors will have so flagrantly breached the regulations that that will be a criminal act. And quasi... Kwarteng has written to me uh, on Saturday morning, actually, saying that he's giving P&O until Tuesday evening to, to explain what they've done. Otherwise, he's going to give it to the prosecutors. So he needs to do that to talk, call them to task. The government, we need to support the demand that the government intervene. Now, they can intervene in a number of ways. They can order the Maritime and Coastal uh, Authority to intervene and hold those vessels in port until this is sorted out. And if necessary... 
I believe that we should take these companies into public ownership. Some of these seafaring routes used to be in public ownership. Sealink used to run a lot of these uh, routes under the British under British Railways. They were state owned, and we didn't have these kind of problems. And people could expect decent conditions. So those are the immediate things that can happen. And of course, the Scottish government and the Northern Ireland Assembly also have powers because there is a domestic route between Scotland, uh, Cairn Ryan in Scotland, and uh, Larne uh, in County Antrim where they can make an intervention. So. There are three out of the four nations that are involved in this that can get directly involved as political entities. And the weird thing is, Owen, I never thought I'd say this, we've got support from the Democratic Unionist Party. I believe that Sinn Féin is supporting us in uh, up north in the north of Ireland as well. We've had support from the SNP, we've had support from Labour, and we've had support from Tory politicians. The Tory chair of the Transport Select Committee is supporting us, demanding government intervention on Monday. Keir Starmer came on a call with us and the sacked, docker, uh, sacked uh, port workers on, on uh, the other day, on, fr- on Friday. Um, and so we've got a lot of, a lot of support across uh, the political spectrum. And we've got to turn that into a concrete outcome. In the, immediate, in the immediate term, I've told Keir Starmer, director of his face the other day, he has to take this as an open goal for the Labour Party and the Labour movement and demonstrate to what the former red wall and now blue wall, that he's on the side of workers. Because outsourcing, and this is a form of outsourcing because they've created a company, International Ferry Management, to, to control these uh, the crewing of these um, vessels, that outsourcing is a plague on working class communities, driving down wages, driving down to conditions, stripping out pensions, stripping out sick pay. And we need a set of minimal standards and negotiating rights for trade unions that can be enforced as part of the Labour Party's programme at the next election. And that will stabilise many working class communities and working class people so that they can have the right to trade union representation and the right to job security at a set of standards that we used to have going back to the 60s, 70s and 80s when this could not have happened. And we would have been allowed to take secondary action and blockade those ports which is what we need to do, really. And if there's one thing Kistarmer will never do is miss an open goal. I think that really sums up his well, let's see. courageous truth to power leadership that runs through the core of everything he but does. I, 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 mean, I really believe <laughs> I'm that sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. is at the heart of what's wrong in working class communities at the moment. There's a lot of other things. But the one thing that unites people of all descriptions, and I obviously live in the southeast in London, and I see our outsourced cleaners in transport, mm-hmm. in the health service, in all of the public services. The super exploitation is taking place mm-hmm. through third party companies mm-hmm. and it lies heaviest on the traditional working class communities, which are a mixture of traditional white working class people, if you want to put it that way. But also migrant labour and people new to the country that have come from all sorts of backgrounds in the last 15, 20 years since the liberal, you know, so-called liberalisation of economies. And that will unite them. If we had sectoral negotiation, I know it's a bit technical, but if we had minimum standards for cleaners and catering workers and supply workers and the logistics supply chain, all these delivery uh, people that we're all reliant on every day, if they had a set of standards and union bargaining and national negotiating councils, this country would be entirely different because workers would have some self-respect and people would start to believe again in collective power, which is what they've lost because they've all become atomized and individuals at work. And then when they bring it home from work, everyone feels there's nothing they can do. And the best thing you can do is look for another job. And that's not the way forward. Starmer's got to get behind that. You don't have to be a well, left winger to believe in that. No, well, probably for the best, that isn't it? Uh, but let's let's see how he does. Let's see how he does. But I'm glad you're keeping his his feet to the fire. Mick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. So comprehensive, very very clear. I think anyone who is mystified about exactly what's going on is very clear about it, and also what needs to happen. And I'm sure people will be boycotting PNO on mass. But Mick, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, and uh, and solidarity in the yeah. in the, in the days you. and weeks. Have a great ahead. show. Cheers, buddy. Take care of yourself. I'll have a cup of tea. I'll see you later. Yeah, I'll t- yeah you deserve a cup of tea. You've earned it. <laughs> have a good cup. Right. See you in a bit. See ya. Uh, great stuff there from Nick. Um, before we talk to our next buddy guest, Eddie Bayer Hagen, let's just have a little look. So here's a 
demonstration. Let's have a look at this P&O demonstration. Workers are taking to the streets in various parts of the country. If you're listening to the podcast, that was probably just a bizarre sound of essentially it's had it just had like some sort of mass massive fan going off it was actually just some workers marching under the banner of the rmt now even if you're not watching the video you'll be able to make out what happened here when the conservative mp natalie elphick who's the conservative mp for dover decided to rock up to a demonstration of pno workers she did not get the warmest response <laughs> want about British culture, but I think we've got heckling down to a T. Um, Natalie Helfick was not best pleased there, but I mean, that was deserved. Heckling can be more than deserved, and I think that was pretty justified, given, as the hecklers pointed out, Natalie Helfick voted for fire and rehire, and the sorts of, well, repeated attacks on workers' rights and trade union rights that have happened under the Conservative government that, of course, she is an MP for. Now, let's let's just as well, before we talk to Ellie, just listen to what Andy Burnham, who is, of course, the Greater Manchester Labour Mayor, let's see what he had to say in an interview. Act on this. What, what else will they let go afterwards? Uh, just one more. Um, how do you think that the age of the scheme is going to work? How do you think any of the workers are going to start on that? Or do you think that it will It should be boycotted by everybody. People boycott working for this company while this is ongoing and I would say to the public they should they should boycott uh, traveling with this company stand firm with these workers you know their fight is everybody's fight here I never want to see another government minister use the phrase build back better if they just let this happen because it will mean absolutely nothing at all what we need is intervention from the top today to sort this out uh, and as I say, if the company won't uh, respond, then I would say to the government, you should consider nationalising this company. So that's interesting. A mainstream politician there calling for the nationalisation of P&O. So it's worth seeing whether or not that takes off. Uh, that's been in, Ellie, but as ever, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link, press like and subscribe. Uh, you, If you're listening to the podcast, obviously, great. Leave a review. Uh, spread the word there. Um, and leave a comment as well. If you're watching after the live show, leave a comment on YouTube. All good for the algorithm. I do read through the comments, most of them. Some of, even the, let me say the the more, the more eloquent, the the, the the more fiery end of the comments. I read them all, diligent. Um, also, you can support us on patreoncom jones 84 We're going to work on a documentary imminently. Uh, and that will be decided by people on Patreon. All our documentaries were decided by your suggestions. You can support the show on Super Chat on YouTube as well. Thanks already to Tad Campwell, John McKenzie, and David Barata. I'll go through some of their questions actually with Ellie in a minute. Let's bring her in. Let's bring in Ellie. Ellie Mae Hagen, the director hello. of Hello, uh, the director of Class. Uh, oh, I'll read out the Super Chats at the end as well to thank everyone because I haven't always remembered and I get told off. Ellie, great to see you. Hello. You've gone for Ellie's, Ellie's going. Uh, the reason Ellie's looking so fresh, which I know is what everyone's thinking, is Ellie does these um, ice cold swims first thing in the morning, which to me sound horrific. Well, I actually didn't go today because I woke up with a cold. So I actually think I look really rough, not fresh. You look great. Oh, that, no, so, okay. You go for a cold swim. Um, yeah. Of course, it's just a cold. It's not COVID. No, it's just, it's just a cold, Ellie. Well, fortunately, I had COVID quite recently. So I think. I think uh, I'll be okay for a couple of months on the COVID. You smashed front. it. Yeah. Um, Ellie is one of my dearest friends, but I haven't actually seen her in the flesh for a while. We now solely communicate through the medium of my show. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why we're having a little catch up. Sorry, just because uh, we haven't. Yeah, did you have a good night last night? 
Great. Thanks, Ellie. Uh, let's just move on, shall we? Um, now, Ellie, okay, let's... Uh, we just, obviously, you, you saw there some of the footage. Uh, a Tory mm. MP hasn't gone down well. What do you think? You're the, for those who don't know, Ellie is a, a writer, but also the director of Class, the think tank, which puts a lot of these things in perspective and, 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 and argues for sorts of policies and changes to the economic model that we need. What does this say about our economic model? Let's just do that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, well, we need a, a new uh economic system we need to create a new one uh because the one that we currently have prioritizes the interests of a very tiny 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 group of people um over the interests of the vast majority and you know in this case so we're i can't say too much about this because we're releasing this report next week but we've done a report with um the autonomy autonomy the, the think tank a joint report on um, job insecurity. And what we've found is basically since 2005, in every single sector, no matter how senior you are in your job, you've seen an increase of job insecurity year on year. The only exception to that is 2021. And that's because the pandemic meant that 2020 was so exceptionally insecure for workers that it sort of created this false decrease. But if you take that year out of it, then you can see a a year on year increase of every single sector. So what we're actually seeing, and we've said this in some of our other reports is like, and it's interesting to me, I suppose there's something a little um, full circle about the fact that these are ferry workers who obviously arrive in docks every day. Because what we're actually seeing is a kind of return to the sort of Victorian dock work way of working, which is that you're permanently on call um, to go to work. And if you're not needed, you just don't get called and tough. You just have to figure out how to make ends meet until you get some work. That is the sort of model that like millions and millions of people are now working in. And a big contribute towards that is fire and rehire um, because it allows uh, companies to break people's contracts where they might have secure employment and replace them with um, with contracts that might, might be more insecure. And actually, at class, we don't call for the, uh, the abolishment of zero-hours contracts because we think if you abolish zero-hours contracts, they'll be replaced with tiny-hours contracts. So where you get like four hours a week, you know, that's your contract. So we actually prefer a model like, believe it or not, McDonald's do, where after about three months or six months, maybe, you're given the opportunity as a worker to negotiate your contracted hours based on what you normally work, rather than being given a set contract that could be a tiny hours or a zero hours contract. Anyway, I'm getting into the... Because the the problem with with zero hour contracts at the moment is... Because they're often shown as, oh, well, actually, flexible working works for some people. But the problem is that it's flexibility on the terms of the employer rather than the employee. So what you're trying to talk about, actually, is you, because flexible working arrangements work for lots of people, but it would be on the terms of, of, of workers rather than just dictated by bosses' needs. Yeah, so flexible working does work for some people. It works for a very small amount of people who are already in like very senior positions. Because we did find that people at management level are becoming more insecure than they used to be and you know for some of them being a contracted worker will have advantages like you know they can 
perhaps they can work the hours that they want to work or they can take time off. But that relies on having a very high salary hmm. so that you can put money aside. And that isn't, for most people, that's not the experience of zero hours contracts. For most people, it oft, it comes with a low salary. So that creates exactly the situation that you're talking about, which is, you know, if you don't, if you need the money, you immediately don't have flexibility as a as a worker because you just have to take what you're given because you need the money and you have to really go quite high up the salary mm. brackets um, mm. until you you kind of you're in a position where you don't need the money. You know, mm. and we, we hear this all the time. We interview people all the time about, about this stuff. And, you know, we hear, you know, like um, one common thing, uh, particularly amongst like people working in hospitality is just like sexual harassment in the workplace, either from like customers or colleagues or bosses. They just have to keep quiet about because they know that they're just going to lose their hours, mm. you know, um, like going above and beyond what your what your job says to do um, because you feel like you need to compete with other people for the hours, you know, mm. things like that. So it really just makes you this stuff. The reality for most people is that it makes you totally at the whim of what your bosses want to do often have to having to prove yourself in terms mm. of like why they should give you the hours as opposed to somebody else in some sectors so yeah it's like this i see this what's happened with pno as like a very extreme example of mm. um a wider pattern and i think the main difference between pno and other countries that have um have used fire and rehire or have been accused by unions of fire and rehire. So I'll just name a few. Weetabix, Asda, British Gas, British Airways. The main difference between this one and them is that the this one is just getting rid of the employees altogether. Because normally when you fire and rehire, you fire them and then you rehire the same people. Whereas this one is getting rid of the employees altogether and replacing them with other people. Um, agency workers that I presume PNA must PNO must think that they can exploit more easily, and that also speaks to those workers not having rights and those workers needing rights, um, and really there being a sort of um, duty to sort of to, for us to support both groups of workers coming together to have shared rights and equality, so that this can never happen again. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I see it, basically I see it as like an extreme example of a pattern that's been building for a long time. Um, something we, should, we need to engage with partly because people are putting the comments, but it has been part of the discussion is the B word Brexit. So Tad Campwell says, has leaving the EU weakened the overall rights of UK workers? John McKenzie, why did the RMT encourage their members to vote for Brexit? This is the end result. There's no European staff were fired, just British staff. Yeah, I think this is a bit unpicking a, a bit because... I mean, I, the RMT took a democratic decision, um, whether we like it or not, to to support Brexit. I, we, me and Ellie both campaigned uh, for Remain, but I think it, I'm worried about a kind of Brexit culture creeping into this because obviously there needs to be a broad coalition of people, whether they voted Remain or Leave, uh, to tackle the scandalous lack of workers' rights. A lot part of the reason Leave won was many ex-industrial communities where insecure working patterns have become so dominant that fed into a lot of disillusionment that fed into the brexit vote i mean one thing that i remember i argued in the referendum and in the referendum campaign i remember saying on question time was the danger was that brexit would be used um kind of as an ideological project afterwards when we abandon the minimum standards to kind of have a race to the bottom to compete with the eu on scrapping workers rights but it isn't really fair to say is it that this is brexit specific is it i mean this this could have happened. I mean, this sort these sorts of practices happened in this country before we left the European Union. It's not. I suppose the argument would be instead that the Brexiteers said some of them we're going to have better workers' rights now, and that that hasn't happened. I suppose that's a better critique. What do you think? Sorry, I've said I've said a lot there. Yeah, I think like basically, I think I presume that your viewers slash listeners um, want to create a situation where this doesn't happen anymore, and I would say that. Uh, saying let's rejoin the EU. I mean, for example, not may maybe they think the moment has passed or whatever. But but like, let's hypothetically say that's what your that's what your viewers were saying when they were criticizing RMT's decision to back a Leave vote. Um, 
I would say that that is like barking up the wrong tree and it's actually not going to help the situation. It's true to say that there are certain laws that the certain laws around workers' rights that the EU has, that, that, that exist at an EU-wide level, that if you're a member of the EU, that you have to um, abide by. So in like an example of this is like so, uh, holiday pay, maternity holiday leave, maternity leave, and like the, what is called the working time directive, which is that you can't work any more than 48 hours a week, but you can opt out of that as well. Um, so it's true to say that there are some things that um, that like are at, set at an EU-wide level, but um, this practice of fire and rehire, and actually like the majority of the erosion of workers' rights that we've seen in this country over the last five years have got nothing to do with the EU. In fact, in 2015, Cameron, David Cameron was trying to negotiate with the EU so that, that we could have more autonomy over our, uh, of what we do in this country. We could opt out of certain EU stuff, basically, so that he could, we can work as rights. And we've got to remember that before we um, left the EU, they, uh, David, like David Cameron, when he was prime minister, his government uh, introduced the uh, Trade Union Act, mm-hmm. which... Uh, is a massive crackdown, was a massive crackdown on trade unions and introduced lots and lots of uh, new laws that basically make it really hard to go on strike um, and that sort of make unions have to spend money on pointless administrative things, kind of, I think, can drain unions of money, basically, and also make it harder for unions to be involved with uh, politics with a big P. Um, and that was, you know, that was not, that was irrelevant to whether we were in the EU or not, you know. So, and I think the other thing as well is that fire and rehire, like unions are reporting that fire and rehire has seen an increase over the last sort of um, like eight, 10 years, which is obviously predates us leaving the EU. So I think if your aim is to protect workers' rights and to end the practice of fire and rehire, like imagining that we'll that we will do that by rejoining the EU, I just think you'll be very disappointed if we ever did join the, re, the rejoin the EU because you will find very quickly that it doesn't do that because actually, what you actually need is yes, you need a government that recognizes the importance of trade unions and reflects that in its laws, but you also need trade union power. You need strong memberships. You need. Um, you need like trade unions need the freedom to be able to access workplaces and to organize you know i don't think it's any coincidence that union density as union density has fallen inequality has just exploded um across the across the western world so you know i think like the saying that if we stopped brexit um that like this would stop all this stuff happening i feel like that is a very tempting thing to think because that seems sort of simple and maybe like easier, but it's not the right answer. I think that there's lots of ways that unions can intervene on this stuff. There's like public Mm -hmm. pressure, there's things like strategic legislation, which is where, you know, you take a case um, to court. So an example of this is the GMB Uber case where they took Uber to court and then they Mm -hmm. won the right for their drivers to be seen as um, employees. or you organize in workplaces. This is all in our new report coming out next week. Um, But yeah, there's a reason why in our recommendations, we don't say rejoining the EU is because it is a bit of a red herring. Not that it has no, not that I'm not saying the EU has no influence over improving workers' rights, because it clearly does, but it's just not the main show in town. And seeing it that way just won't get you to where you want to be. Tom Clark is a journalist who's also the contributing editor at Prospect, um, the magazine. And he said, in 1981, Reagan set the neoliberal tide in motion with the mass sacking of air traffic controllers. For those who don't know, the air traffic controllers were on strike in 1981, and literally they just replaced them all en masse. In 2022, P&O is riding to new extremes, and I think a point where will start to unravel. I don't know. I mean, maybe us on the left, like when the financial crash happened, we were like, see? Neoliberalism self evidently being exposed to what it is. It's, how can neoliberalism possibly recover from this one? And then we had years of slash and burn cuts and the public sector being demonized uh, as somehow being responsible for the, for the mess that we're in. 
Um, so I don't want to be, because we do do this a lot sometimes. We're like, well, this is a big moment. Uh, everyone will suddenly see neoliberalism for what it is. And actually, you know, polling-wise, neoliberalism doesn't have mass buy-in uh, in terms of enthusiastic support. It often has acquiescence or resignation, which are different. But what do you think? I mean, surely this, people will look at this and go, you know, because they'll, they'll, people ask questions, don't they, about something like this? They, they don't just look at this and think this is terrible in its own right. They think, what kind of system could allow this to happen? What sort of country am I living in where this is possible? Those are the kind of profound questions people ask. So what do you think? I mean, is this a real moment where people might begin to, as I said, not break their enthusiasm, which I don't think exists for neoliberalism, but their resignation or their acquiescence? What do you think? Is this a big, big moment? Well, I'm going to plug my book. So I'm writing a book called about, um, well, I say called, I haven't, haven't come up with a title yet, but it's basically about um, the sort of a modern history of the centre ground. So I'm looking at how the centre ground was formed and how it collapsed. My argument is that it collapsed as a result of the financial crisis. So I actually did spend the last two days sitting in the British Library reading um, microfilm, which is like when you're in, when you like, you, you probably use it for your degree, Owen, but like when you're, mm-hmm. When you watch those kind of murder mystery films and there's like a detective who's like reading old newspaper headlines on those screens, like that's what microfilm is. Um, All based around September 2020. So I I read all of the articles that were written in September 2020 in the Times and the Guardian. Um, And yeah, but what I found then was that, yeah, people were, there was a kind of sense of like, can capitalism survive this, basically? and there was a very funny interview with Ken Livingston where he was like, alas, I think capitalism might survive, <laughs> uh, which now seems like very quaint. Um, and what I noticed, uh, like, when I was doing this research is that there was definitely this sense of something, something has sort of fought, unraveled, something that we thought was certain and sure and something that we all accepted as being the way things are, all of that has unraveled in a matter of days. And people were asking what's next and what does this mean and what's gonna come from this. But all of the people who were in power, who had the ability to create whatever came next, were very uh, attached to the existing system. Uh, and, and in fact, were so they'd, really, they'd drunk the Kool-Aid of that system to such an extent that they couldn't actually conceive of what an alternative system looked like. They nationalized the banks because they had to, but they didn't like it. And they didn't really see that as a gateway into doing something different. They just saw it as a temporary uncomfortable thing that they would have to do before they went back to normal. Um, And there were left voices. So like people like Michael Meacher, you know, people like John McDonnell, they were, um, like and then the sort of grouplets like the Socialist Party, the Socialist Worker Party, you know that kind of stuff. They were putting out, you know, these sort of left critiques or these like ideas for alternatives, but they were so marginalised, um, you know, like in the in the um, in the research I did, Michael Meacher got a letter in the Guardian, and that was it. You know, he didn't get any coverage. They were so marginalised that it was like quite hard for them to get a look in. What do we learn from that that we can apply to this? I think that we learn that people um, tend to pick up the ideas that are lying around. You know, we've you've said that before, the Milton Friedman quote, in a crisis, people just pick up the ideas that are lying around. And then the then the impossible can become the inevitable. Yeah, so it, exactly. He says it depends on a crisis, but he says it depends on the ideas lying around. And the problem with 2008 was the left didn't have a clear, coherent alternative. Um so you had a crisis of capitalism, but you had an empty cupboard for the left, which has changed now. But um, but you had huge amounts of neoliberal ideas, which could then be appropriated. And the balance of power in society meant that obviously the elites uh, could use that crisis uh, as another power grab. Oh, <laughs> right. my husband has just turned up with a notepad and said, I said September 2020 instead of 2008. I meant 2008. Oh, um, I like it. Is, is he just sitting there, just next to you? Just no, he was up. in the other room, and then he, I think he must be listening to it in the other room. Bless. Um, that's it. Ladies, get you a man that <laughs> watches all your appearances on the Owen Jones show. Um, just just check your dates. Check <laughs> your dates for you. you, not me. Um, what was I saying? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I think I think that has changed now. Like that was one thing that was very heartening was I was just like, God, there really wasn't a left in two thousand and eight. It really was just Michael Meacher and John McDonald and a bit of Ken Livingston thrown in for good measure. And now we do have a bit more of a left sort of ecosystem in the media. And I think there is a kind of renewed sense of um that things need to change. I think um, you know, you can see uh, with the trade unions seem to be getting more militant. Um, you know, there's like, there's the kind of climate movement um, of like, young people, Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of these different mm-hmm. sort of radical yeah. elements coming together. And I, I think um, our, our role as a sort of collective um, is to imagine something different um, and to say kind of what we're for and what our world looks like. Um, uh, not just with this, but with a whole host of other things that we're facing. So finally, let's do a kind of wrap up. Where do we go right. from here? What do you think the kind of key demands are that people should be focusing on in the here and now? Well, I mean, I think what Mick said is really important that like, basically there has to be some kind of sanction, doesn't there, that makes it not worth doing. Like, you know, that's the problem here is that the sanctions that, DP world are going to face are not severe enough to stop them from doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting how much sort of uh, support there is for nationalization. Um, so Andy Burnham uh, just mm-hmm. called for it. Um, mm-hmm. But so did uh, Ian Dale, who actually he's a, he's right wing. Mm-hmm. He's a right wing radio presenter who actually ran as a conservative MP. I mean, there are reasons for, for calling for it are very different. Um, I think Ian Dale's is more around the fact that like on that particular trading route, it's only P&O ferries that run it. So it's a bit like a natural monopoly. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Andy Burnham, it's more about um, workers' rights. But I don't see why that that shouldn't be on the table. I mean, they've behaved badly, like just take it away from them, you know? And I, I, I personally am of the mind that anything, any sort of anything that's of a kind of essential service should be, not necessarily like it should be nationalized, but it should be up for discussion that it gets nationalized. Any service that people have to use, but they don't get a choice about using. I, I've, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of a tiny group of individuals making a profit out of that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those cases. So personally, I would like to see um, nationalization. I would like to see sort of criminal sanctions against the relevant people if it's been shown that... Um, uh, that they have broken the law. And from what Mick says, it sounds like they have. Um, and obviously, you know, a big strike fund for RMT workers and just full support for the union as well in this case. Um, and, you know, in all cases, when it comes to support of the union, but I mean like RMT union in this case. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the things that I would like to see. Um, I don't think that we can just let companies get away with it. And I actually think that, quite a lot of people, whatever politics they have, are just sick and tired of stories like this, where Mm -hmm. people just do like these sort of handful of people at the top, very small group of people Mm -hmm. do awful things and screw over ordinary people who are just trying to make ends meet and then just get away with it. I mean, I feel like that's been the theme of the last sort of, I mean, well, for time in memoriam but particularly that seems particularly bad in the last few years and i think it's got to end it's got to stop got a bloody end hasn't it hasn't it ellie yeah <laughs> stop it right just stop it right now that's my demand stop it just just please just don't stop being mean capitalism what are you like <laughs> with your little scamp ellie i'm giving uh, you the right. finger under the table right now just so you know bit rude bit rude to come on my show and make profane sort of gestures at me but take it in my stride <laughs> um we'll sh- we should hang out soon though maybe i should do my friend admin off air because probably no one cares um but i hope i'm glad you came on despite your cold not covid colds do you remember those colds we got colds back in the day so i hope so i hope it's a cold i'll be gutted I if it's don't COVID. have covid again you had co- you had covid about three weeks ago i don't think yeah. you did. although i do know people actually got it over christmas and then have got it more recently that my cousin my cousin was one of them that'd be well yeah, annoyed. i do know two people 
But maybe, you never know, maybe it was a little Delta Omicron crossover. You never know. Oh, yeah, because they, they fuse, haven't they? Yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't want to get COVID again. I think, I'm, I've, I've, I think we've done COVID. Well, we haven't done COVID because COVID hasn't vanished, unfortunately. Um, Ellie, that was great. You go and look after your cold. Um, and I hope you feel better. And we will Thanks. see you soon. But that was, that was another, another tour de force. <laughs> Thanks. It's all right. Uh, go and have fun with your husband, who's strutting around with his notepad, making sure you don't get your dates wrong. I mean, he does that even when I'm not, you know, he's always <laughs> following me around with a notepad. <laughs> just random, just random conversations. Whenever you get, if you're in the pub, just make a slightly, a small factual error. He's just... <laughs> so we've got like an archive in the house of all of the sort of factual errors that I've made. He's got like a whole filing cabinet. He just occasionally just goes through just all, your little, <laughs> all your little daily errors. Um, lots of love, Ellie. I will speak to you soon, but I hope, I hope you're doing better. Thank you. Bye. 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 Uh, thanks to both uh, Ellie and Mick. They were both fantastic as as you'd expect always got a great caliber of guests in the show i don't think we ever have any duds uh but they were absolutely fantastic really summed it up it's very important that we obviously cast a spotlight not just on this particular issue but the wider lessons about our economic system and our broken social order uh and the sort of demands that people need to make uh so i think that's very important um i am going to go and do some writing now so i'm going to leave you all to it uh we've got well We've got obviously our show next week, but we've got documentaries, interviews in the pipeline. I'm not going to mention my book because no one wants to hear me say that again. Um, thanks to Tad Campwell, John McKenzie, and David Bowater. Uh, so everyone, whatever, whatever. I was going to say have a lovely Sunday, but most people don't watch or listen to this on the Sunday. So, uh, oh, here we go. Let's have a look at this. Nicola, oh, blimey, uh, Nicola Wegner. Please check your email for a booking inquiry for a feature film. Oh, sorry, I feel bad now. It's got to the point with my failure to respond to the emails that i get uh that people are now using super chat to uh press me which is perfectly reasonable uh sorry nicole i'll get onto that um i don't really have a choice now because <laughs> you've uh supported the channel which is very sweet of you uh, i'll get onto that okay great uh cheers everyone that was fantastic stuff lots of love and i will see you very soon please support this channel for independent thought discussion of the most important issues that we face. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.